All right, today we are continuing the series, uh, Dear Church, uh, Seven Letters to the Church of Revelation. Um, that is, just as a couple reminders, it's written by John, the Apostle John, the last surviving apostle who was banished to the island of Patmos, where God reveals to him the revelation of King Jesus. Uh, so we are on the third letter to the church this week. Uh, if you recall, uh, Revelation is there designed to reveal Jesus in all his glory as king. If you, if you remember the last couple of weeks, Jeff referenced that maybe today in our society we have a little bit of a weak view of Jesus, maybe a lighthearted view of Jesus. He actually quoted a pastor, Vadi Bakum, that said, today's culture, we have a sissified view of Jesus, not forgetting the fact that he is the coming and conquering king. Uh, and that's an important thing to notice. And that's what Revelation reveals to us, that Jesus is that coming, conquering king, and that we should look to the present Right? Look at the present through the lens of the future. So that hope that he gives us, that hope that we have redemption, the hope that he is coming for eternity and our glorification, that should give us a hope no matter what we're going through today, no matter what we're going through. And the thought is that it can change your thinking in your life if you focus on the future coming of Jesus and that hope that gives us hope through hard times. So the last two weeks, the first week, uh, Jeff had spoke on the church to Ephesus. Jesus had showed up as uh, the walking through the churches. Remember, the churches were the lampstand, and Jesus was the one who walks through those seven churches. And he talks about their perseverance, but they lost their first love in Jesus. And the second church, uh, Jesus then shows himself as the one who was dead and is now alive. And I'm speaking to the church in Smyrna, encouraging them not to fear in the face of persecution. Today, we will say King Jesus as the one who comes with the sharp two-edged sword. So many of you who, if you're familiar with Scripture, are probably well aware that that's probably a very strong reference to the word of his mouth, him being the word, the Bible, the Scripture, him speaking the word of God. Well, he has a message with this two-edged sword today with the church at Pergamum. So let's read, if you will, in your Bibles uh, in front of you or open up to two, Revelation 2. Uh, it's on page 966 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Uh, I have no idea what page it is if you're using your phone. So, uh, um, so let's read Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it.
Now remember, if you remember, the angel Jeff had set up and described the angel as either potentially an angel or a messenger. Either way, it didn't matter. Just We just know that we need to read and respond to the letter. So today, we're going to, I kind of titled the message, Conquer or Compromise. Uh, so this letter deals a lot about the church compromise in the face of persecution and what they were doing. So as we set this up today, we're going to talk about compromise that we see in the church at Pergamum, the compromise that we might see in the church today, and what does that mean for us individually as followers of Christ. So you can see on the map here, Pergamum was, is about 50 to 60 miles north of Smyrna. You can see all the churches here on there. So a little bit of a background of, on Pergamum, a uh, population of about 150,000 um, in Asia Minor, a capital of Asia Minor for a time. Today, it's actually the city of Bergama uh, sits at the, at the base of where this temple was, uh, and it's only about 50,000 people. So it's a little bit less than it was in, in that time. It was known widely as a religious center. So whereas Ephesus was a commerce center, um, uh, Pergamum is a, was a religious center, host of fine tapestries, pottery, medicine, and also the second largest library. And this is important because um, they were into words and learning. So it's a very interesting connection that Jesus chooses to show up as the one with the sword out of his mouth to a group who had the second largest library of parchments in the world next to Alexandria at the time and were known for the parchments that they made. Actually, it's suggested that that's where the word parchment comes from, is the city of Pergamum. And so they felt words and learning mean something. So it's interesting how Jesus shows up to this church. So Pergamum was also the center of pagan worship. So as it seems pretty consistent with all of these uh, churches in some manner, there was some level of pagan worship. So two types of things particularly stood out here. Um, You had Roman worship, so this was the initial center of Roman worship. And you also have a reference to a throne here. So you'll see on the next picture, this throne of Zeus on the right. Um, Actually, it was a thousand feet above the city, and was a very large throne, uh, and it was the Temple of Zeus. And actually, the model you see on the right side there is actually in Germany. So it's interesting that they replicated it and put it in Germany uh, there. Uh, But that overlooked the city, and one of the possible reasons why John was saying the throne of Satan, right? One of the possible reasons. The other one was Roman emperor worship started here. This is where they started the Caesar cults. So that temple on the left is the temple of Trajan that sits on the top. Um, Also, significant Roman pagan worship and cults. Both were possible reasons why John at the time is saying, this is where Satan dwells, this is the throne of Satan, because at the time it was well known for its major and many religious cults. Asclepius, the god of medicine, Dionysus, Athena, Caesar worship of Augustus, Trajan, Nero, plus the Egyptian gods of Isis and Diana, all happened at the same time. Now, so regardless of whether it was the actual seat that John's talking about here, it doesn't really matter. It's pretty clear what's going on in this city. Christians living in this culture, and when I say pagan, sometimes we just pass over that word and we say, okay, they're living in pagan cultures. So my apologies for the little, if it's too graphic, but I want to make sure it's pretty clear about what's happening at this time. 
So they had multiple altars. On these altars, they had a mix of strangling animals, killing animals, sacrificing animals with their blood, and sometimes child sacrifice. The shedding of their blood, then they decided to go take, that, take the meat from the animals and actually have a festival and eat the food there. Coupled with that food, then it was followed generally by wild sexual immorality. Those normally happened at both times. So a lot of times today we can think of, okay, it was a pagan culture. No, that is pretty demonic when you think about that, right? Now, on the other hand, you could say, well, we don't really deal with that today. But I will tell you there's other compromises that the church deals with, right? So we want to be aware of that. So certainly a place, as John calls it, where Satan dwells. And in addition, you had Christians living in among, amongst this. They were not fleeing here. The church of Pergamum was not running away. They were living amongst it. In addition to that, part of the people living there required them, in order to have economic prosperity, required them to go and practice at these ceremonies. You had to go and eat at these ceremonies and sacrifices if you were going to have any economic flourishment at the time. So now can you imagine Christians who are trying to live in that city and then also getting economic pressure because they didn't want to partake in those things. Unfortunately, some of the Christians started to, right? So, no doubt, they're feeling pressure. So sometimes today we could say, well, are we feeling pressure? I think in some sense, not necessarily like that. But it is important because Jesus comes and tells this church the importance of not compromising, and it's an important message for us as well. So he says in verse 13, he starts with an encouragement. You hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So like Smyrna, as I said, Christians were being persecuted. And he mentions Antipas specifically. So you'll see the picture here of Antipas on the left. And actually, he was killed at the foot of this temple. So this is a temple was well, suggested he was killed at this temple, one of the Egyptian temples there. The interesting thing, he, was, he wasn't just martyred. Uh, stories suggest that he's actually put into a bronze bowl and boiled. Right? So I'm saying that very specifically because sometimes we read these words on the pages and we're like, okay, uh, that's nice. You know, that's pretty interesting. But the idea here in that story suggests that Antipas um, didn't want to practice the art of medicine as they were practicing it and did not want to compromise on his faith, and Antipas was put to death. So very much like, um, if you recall, Polycarp that uh, Jeff had talked about last week was appointed by John, Antipas was appointed by John as well. So both of them were apostles appointed by John. And um, Jesus is calling them and using Antipas very personally as an example to say, hey, hold fast to my faith, just like Antipas did. In light of what's going on around, hold fast, hold firm to my faith. And the question he asks for us today is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to do the same? And the question for us is, not in light of pagan practices, per se, of what's happening, but in light of what's happening in the culture today, do we as the church universal, do we as Echo Lake, and do we as individuals hold firm to the faith? Do we hold to Jesus' name and willing to proclaim it even to the point of faithful Antipas? Right? So I heard a phrase recently. Um, I, I work in human resources, for those of you who don't know. So um, I get a lot of um, 
I, I deal with a lot of things that are going on in the world today and with human resources, especially around um, identity and um, choices and, and things like that that happen in the workplace. And um, one of the gentlemen that I was talking to who was also a Christian uh, in human resources, and he said, have you ever heard of the theology of getting fired? I said, no, I haven't heard that one. He said, well, the idea today is at what point are you going to continue to keep your faith, uphold the commandments of Jesus and his name, and would you do that at the risk of getting fired if you were asked to do something that was contrary to what Jesus is calling you to? Interesting question, right? Would we be willing to do that? Because a lot of our comfort, a lot of our identity is built in the work that we do today. Right? So something to consider as we read these letters. Jesus says in verse 14, he rebukes them. He says, I have a few things against you. Some of you hold the teaching of Balaam and in the same way to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here's a little bit of context around this. So Balaam was a, uh, a diviner, a, a seer in the Old Testament. Um, actually, there's several chapters in Numbers about this relationship between Balaam and Balak. And what it was, was um, Balaam was contacted by this King Balak and the Moabites. And at the time, the Moabites, that, that, that land was where the Israelites were camping out in preparation to go to Canaan. So they were, they were populating this land of Balak, and he was a little concerned about it. So he contacted this, this seer, this diviner, Balaam, and said, Hey, could you come and pronounce a curse over Israel? So they will get out of our land. And he, and he was going to give him a reward, a substantial reward. So the heart of Balaam was that he actually wanted to receive the reward. So he was willing to pronounce a curse over Israel. Well, the interesting thing is that he tried this three times. And each time he went up on the mountain to pronounce a curse over Israel, God pronounced a blessing through him over Israel. And Bala kept getting mad at him. Why are you pronouncing blessings when I'm asking you to curse? Well, God would not let him do that. Well, eventually what happened, um, moved by greed to receive the reward, Balak actually suggested, I'm sorry, Balaam suggested to Balak that the Israelites partake in idolatrous worship, feasts, and immorality, and do this by being seduced by the women of uh, the Moabites, Right? So you see this same practice, this is what Jesus is talking about, this same practice that Balaam brought forth is happening again in a similar manner. And the Nicolaitans, the reading would suggest that the Nicolaitans were doing the same thing, right? The, the, the word and the phrase is in the same way or in the same manner, the Nicolaitans are doing uh, the same type thing. So probably following the same false teachings here, the only difference is uh, it's also suggested that the Nicolaitans introduced this concept of licentiousness. So I don't know if you've heard of that, but Paul addresses it very specifically in Corinthians. We'll talk a little bit about that. But that's basically, I'm a Christian, I'm free in Christ, therefore I have liberty to do what I want to do. Now you could imagine that dangerous theology coming into the place. Christ has forgiven me, I believe in faith in Christ, therefore no matter what I do, I'm going to be forgiven. So therefore, I have the license to do what I want to do. That was also what was being brought into the church, right? It's a compromised lifestyle of idolatry and immorality coming in at these times, which, by the way, was supported by the government, 
Interesting. By Rome at the time, right? So we see, hopefully you're starting to draw some similarities. So as I said, this issue has happened time and time again. It started in Mount Sinai. We see it through the books of Deuteronomy and Numbers. We saw it on the plains of Moab that I just mentioned. We saw it during the reign of Solomon, uh, so much so that the Christian church addresses it. When James talks about bringing in the Greeks uh, or the pagan believers into the faith, he says, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and stay away from fornication. So he says the same thing. God, time and time again, has brought forth, be aware of this. This causes compromise. Don't do it. James said it to the, to the um, Greek uh, and the pagans who were becoming believers. Paul addresses it again in Colossians, in Ephesians, in Corinthians, in Galatians. He addresses it again, immoral practices and the idea of compromising on your faith. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 8-9, Paul says, But take care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. So he's addressing this licentiousness that the Nicolaitans were known for. We're compromising, the church was compromising, again, allowing for a variety of reasons to start to eat food sacrificed to idols, to start to allow licentiousness. And we have to be careful of that. A willing compromise to stay comfortable or following the false teachers. So Jesus very specifically calls out these false teachers that we have to be careful of. Jeff mentioned in a couple of the churches too, he said, beware of these wolves among you, these false teachers. And Jesus is remembering, recalling this again. So why, why all this setup? Because we have to be aware, first of all, church universal, that there, can, there's comp, there is compromise. And we have to be aware of compromise in the church today. Thankfully, I don't believe there's compromise at Echo Lake Baptist Church but I do believe there's compromise in the church universal that we have to be aware of. The offshoot of that compromise is, am I compromising in my own life? So all of these areas that I'm gonna bring up to you, I'm just gonna go through all of them and they can be unpacked further, but those are areas, these are areas of compromise that we're seeing either churches or church leaders start to say, this is norm, this is okay. And what happens is it leads their own flock astray. So we have to, one, be aware of it. Two, we've got to be diligent that we don't start to think of those in our own life. Because we don't want to be eating food sacrificed to idols or allowing liberty to reign. But I said, as I said before, praise God, the Echo Lake holds to a sound biblical teaching. So I've kind of laid these out through a couple altars. Some altars where we might be sacrificing food to idols that we want to be careful of. The first is the altar of greed and comfort. We have to be very, very careful of this as a church, right? So uh, first and foremost, as Americans, we enjoy comfort, right? It's what we know. We actually have a, a very strong belief in autonomy and our personal freedom, our ability to do what we want when we want, as well as uh, safety and prosperity, well, in the church, what happens is this shows up as prosperity theology. Jeff talked about this last week. So the idea that is if you, um, if you are willing to, um, there's clear teaching around being content in all things, right? So that's one thing that Jesus has. But the, the theology says that the belief in God is about personal enrichment. 
right? So uh, financial and physical well-being are always God's will for me, uh, and that comes through faith, positive speech, and donations, interestingly enough. Right? So we have to be very careful of that. And the reason why I have to say be careful of that, because if you're a reader, then you have to be very careful that at any one time, six to seven of the top ten Christian books are related to prosperity gospel in some way. So you have to be very, very careful of that, right? To know what you're, to know what you're reading. The other side of that greed is comfort, right? So how are we being, are we comfortable? And I, I think this, this commentator says it all. Sometimes... Believers insist on pastime, safety, and comfort that may actually be contrary to the word and will make them, the believers, vulnerable to evil influences, making them so self-absorbed that they're ineffective in serving others and ineffective witnesses for Jesus. So we have to be careful on one hand what greed is showing up in the church. On the other hand, are we being too comfortable? Right? The other is the altar of science and mysticism. So why do I say that one? Because... Both of those have entered the church in a couple different areas. On one hand, science is the suggestion that God did not create things. God was not the creator, right? But that there was a scientific reason for that. And what happens is that, teach starts, that teaching starts to incorporate other beliefs, um, beliefs, incorrect beliefs in the Bible, as well as other beliefs and reliance on science, which becomes a different faith altogether. It's called scientism. Mysticism is the other end of that. Mysticism is New Age. So New Age is all about experiences. So you can see where this goes. Um, it's not about me reading the Bible and what God's Word says, but it's about my experience and my feelings and the sense that I have about things. That's the other age of New Age mysticism. So we have to be very, very careful of that. All of these, again, I said, there are churches who believe in different aspects of these things. So we have to be very careful. The altar of government. What I mean by that is, it's, an, it's not a political statement. What I mean by that is, governments, just like in that time where the Romans were saying, this is an okay thing to do, our government is saying certain, with certain things, this is an okay thing to do and believe. And the idea of that is, is that yes, as Christians, we are called to be under the authority of government, but that doesn't give us license to say that because the government says that's right, we therefore should do that and it's incorporated in our lives. So we have to be very, very careful of that because we know it comes through these two other altars that I'm going to talk about, these three other, uh, these, three, these two others that I'm going to talk about, which is redefinition of marriage and then sexual promiscuity and preferences, right? Other two altars. So you don't have to go very far to search that there's churches who um, have redefined marriage and uphold marriage that is outside of God's word and redefined morality and have uphold that as a redefinition of morality and preferences. So I'm not, I'm not here to spend a lot of time on that, but in terms of marriage, we know that clearly in Genesis it says a man and a woman. We also know that marriage has a purpose, which is to have children and to do the earth and continue to work through it in partnership right? Um, so, and to bring children up in the nurture and admission of the Lord, right? So the Bible confirms this, and the Bible is also clear about morality, sexual morality in particular, right? <clears throat> why, so why do I bring these up? Because sometimes, and in the idea of the church at Pergamum, they were really starting to come in, take these thoughts, and say, these thoughts were okay. 
I have the liberty to believe these things. It is my right. And sexual preferences, you have to be very careful with these. Many of these are addressed either in principle or actually clearly in Scripture. Adultery, random sexual promiscuity, harassment, sex trafficking, men dressing as females, homosexuality, improper relations between women, pornography. All of those are addressed in principle or very specifically in Scripture in some way. But in the churches today, all of these altars are starting to hit at the fringes of, the, of different churches, different denominations and things like that. And praise God, not here at uh, Echo Lake. And we stand firm on Scripture. But I tell you all those because there is compromise, right? And Jesus is clearly saying churches do not compromise. Because out of the church compromise, you get personal compromise. So the next question is, where are we personally compromising? Right? Because of our desire to love others, do we steer clear from making and standing firm, making decisions and standing firm on these? Because we don't want to be shamed or seen as the hater or the person that is, is not loving their brother and sister. Do we steer clear of paying attention to the behaviors that are right or wrong and avoiding that conversation? Do we just deal with permissive grace? It's your choice to do it, so therefore it's fine. So we handle the love side, but we don't necessarily speak the truth in that. And Jesus, through the sword of his mouth, is saying, no, 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 you have to speak truth. You have to hold to my word today. So Jesus' rebuke is then, repent therefore, else I am coming quickly, and I will make war with them with the sword of my mouth. So Jeff talked about this, repent. What are we repenting of? The universal church should repent because there's compromise in there, right? And we want to be very, very diligent to understand what the word says in terms of that so that we can be clear and obedient to that. But then secondarily to that, how do we repent in our lives? What is it? Is there something that's going on in our lives that is causing us to compromise, causing us not to be the Antipas that Jesus talked about? that I am living my faith, that I am a faithful witness, that I am hold fast to Jesus' name. Are there parts of our life today, an idol, a compromise, right? Something that you set up through self, through comfort, through busyness, through priorities, a compromise of faith. Well, the only way that you can know if that something is compromised is through what Jesus comes as, the sword of the Spirit. Jesus reveals himself to the messenger as the sword of the spirit, right? The sharp two-edged sword. So that sharp two-edged sword, as I alluded to before, clearly for most of us who have studied this would know that it's the word of God. It's the Bible, right? It's his scripture. So whatever we feel we're battling with today, whatever compromise that we have, we have to always shore it up against scripture. So personally, I could tell you that for many, many, many years, I had a level of compromise in, in my life, right? And I was, had the ability to say, I am fine being a Christian, but still having compromise over here. So I do what men do really well, which is segment our lives. Like, this is me here, and this is me here, right? And we have to be very, very, very careful about how we're compromising. And Jesus uses, as D.L. Moody calls, the straight stick of truth, Right, his word of God to say, no, this is a compromise and you need to hold faithful like Antipas. As I said, 
what brings it, what makes it interesting is Jesus shows himself as the sword of the spirit. We know the verses. Many of us know these verses, right? Revelation 1.16, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. Thessalonians, the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Revelations 19.13, he's called the word of God. Out of his mouth comes the two-edged sword. Ephesians, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as a division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The two-edged sword was actually made most famous by the Romans. They had a short two-edged sword about this this much, an iron blade, and it actually cut on both sides so they could have double, double the amount of damage at the time that they did it. So the interesting thing with that two-edged sword is not only did the Roman proconsuls use that sword to say, I have authority over life and death, but guess what? That two-edged sword is Jesus Christ and his word, which he has authority, ultimate authority over life and death, right? So there's a variety of verses that support this authority and the power of the word. And the word is the ultimate truth, right? All scripture is God-breathed and useful for scripture, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Jesus is the one showing as the two-edged sword. So do we use that straight, straight, straight stick of truth and examine scripture every day as the Bereans and Acts did? So no matter what Paul said, we examine scripture. And what are we examining? Well, we want to accurately handle the word of truth so that we are very clear about what's a compromise and what's not a compromise. And what is that for us today? What is that for us today? Jesus' word is, if any of you love me, you'll keep my word. And God's word cuts through that false teaching today. What is that false teaching that you might have? We need to know what's going on in the larger church, but we also need to understand what that culture, that city of Pergamum, the culture that we live in today, what does that mean then in terms of what it's telling us for how we live in our life? And we can only really know that by following the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The ultimate authority comes through Jesus' Word. So he leaves us with a blessing. He who has an ear, let, us hear, let him hear. To him who overcomes or conquers. To him I will give hidden manna and a white stone and a new name. So what does all this have to do? Well, manna was what God gave to nourish the Jews when they were in the wilderness. When they followed him, they nourished, he, he nourished them through manna. We are called to remain faithful regardless of circumstances. And in doing so, he will provide us that hidden manna. Jewish tradition also holds that there's a, a cup or a bowl or a portion of that manna in the Ark of the Covenant. That would suggest that when God returns, that manna would be released and we would have that nourishment. This manna, if you, refer, you recall that Jesus refers to himself as the breath of life, the bread of life, I'm sorry right? Our final nourishment in Jesus is all we need. Whatever the compromise is, we need to use the Word of God to make sure we're very clear that we're not compromising. And if we do so, we overcome, we receive Jesus as the bread of life, that nourishment. He gives us that manna. 
and we feast with him. Do you have that manna today? Would you like that manna? The other blessing is the white stone. So the white stone in those days could be put in the palm of my hand. I meant to grab one, but I forgot. And it has a variety of meanings. So when you run a race and you win the race, Jeff talked last week about a wreath that they put on their head, but sometimes when you ran a race and you won, they would give you a white stone and it would have the, either the name of the person who sponsored you or was having the celebration. So you could then turn that stone in to go to the celebration and have a feast, right? The other was at the time they had white stones and you, if you were being judged in a court, you either had a, received a white stone or a black stone of condemnation. You're being judged approved or not approved. And in this, Jesus is saying, I'm approving you. You have a white stone of righteousness, and oh, by the way, you also have a new name on it from the one who calls you by name. A new name that in Revelation later on, it talks about us having a new name written on our forehead. Right? So what does this mean? What does this blessing mean? Well, the blessing actually is a really solid connection to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So God is saying, hey, if you overcome, there is compromise in this world today. What is it that you're dealing with in the compromise? Is it, is it immorality? Is it a prioritization? Is it an idol? What is it? Is it yourself? Is it others causing the compromise? What is it? But guess what? Overcome. Because if you overcome, you will have hidden manna. You can join me at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you have the ability to get in with this white stone. And you can feast with me. And you're going to receive the nourishment that only I can give. Only I can give. Where we can dine with Jesus, the bread of life, and have a new name if you overcome. So what do we do? Be spiritually on guard. There's a lot of things going on in the culture, and I would be wrong if I told you that it was going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So church, we need to stand firm, and we need to repent of any compromise that we have. And we need to practice the spiritual discipline of being in God's word. Because that straight stick of truth, that sword of the Spirit is the only thing that will keep us to be aware of compromising. Are we obeying or are we not obeying? Are we compromising or are we not compromising? So we need to practice that spiritual discipline. Pray, fast, listen, study, meditate on His Word. And God says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. I'm with you always. Even in that moment of Antipas. Right? So we need to be clear. Spiritually on guard. Repent of any compromise. Practice the discipline of understanding and reading and meditating on God's word. So you can listen to King Jesus today who says at the last church in Revelation, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. I will be his manna. And guess what? I, I get to collect your stone with your name on it. Whoever stands at the door, listen today, church.
And Jesus is knocking. Amen.